Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here at St. Joseph's this evening. Um, I can't, just when you're talking about the seven-year anniversary, that is absolutely amazing to me. It just seems like yesterday, um, when we were sat in Jesmond Parish Church, um, people were talking about possibly buying a building in Benwell. Uh, and it's just amazing to see God's faithfulness um, in this congregation. And thank you so much uh, for the privilege of coming over here uh, to open up God's words here. Thankfully, it's not going to be me speaking, it's going to be God speaking to us tonight. What is the weirdest dream you have ever had? Dreams are one of the, the strangest things about being a human, aren't they? Uh, you know, you head off to bed, you wind down, and somehow, and it baffles me still to this day, you end up asleep, totally oblivious to what is going on in the outside world. It's like we're like on some battery saving mode, or charging mode, really. But unlike your iPhone, which I'm led to believe doesn't experience anything when it's charging, we often find ourselves transported to very strange worlds. A few years ago, I was struggling with sleepwalking. And this wasn't just any sleepwalking. I mean, I was running about the place. Some of my dreams, it was like being in a virtual reality headset, minus the headset on. And in one of my dreams, I had a really bad pain in my left foot. And those are usually the scary dreams, aren't they? The ones where you can start to perceive a bit of pain in them. I was like, oh, what's going on here? How can you get injured in a dream, you might be thinking? Well, as I woke up, this was about five years ago, don't worry, it wasn't last week, but still five years ago, it's not that long ago, I realized that my foot pain in the dream was actually to do with the reality I found myself in. Um, I was lying on the floor in my room and my mom, who I lived with at the time, was just standing over me with her hands on her head like, what is going on? I'd had a, a terrible night terror, let's call it that. What I'd done, actually, is I'd ripped the bedroom door off its hinges and literally kicked through the thing, and I was lying on the floor, and I looked down at my foot, and I was literally bleeding. My foot was still impaled in the door, and it was just blood everywhere. Absolutely horrible. It, but the most annoying thing about dreams, usually, is that you, you wake up and you have no recollection of what's actually been going on in them. And I'm so annoyed because I would have loved to have known what had went on in that dream to make me rip the door off the hinges, but I generally can't remember. Don't worry, I've been to see the doctor. I'm not sleepwalking anymore, as my wife Rachel will testify. But tonight we are looking at a dream, a vision of Daniel. And whatever was terrifying me in my dream, Daniel's vision leaves him, as he describes in verse 8, uh, in, in the last verse of chapter 8, he says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by this vision and did not understand it. Well, we're going to need God's help to understand not only the contents of Daniel's vision, what, what everything means, but also understand why God has this in his word, the Bible. Why does this matter to us today in Benwell. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you that we can come together this evening to worship you. Thank you that your whole word, the Bible, is profitable for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be equipped for every good work. Lord, we have a really difficult passage to understand tonight, so we pray by your Holy Spirit that you speak clearly to all of us and speak clearly through me so that we can love you more and follow you more in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So please have your Bibles open um, whilst we look at Daniel's vision here. We're looking at Daniel chapter 8, the whole thing. Uh, that's on page 745 in your Bible. So just give you a moment, and most people have got that open, but please get that open. You need to make sure that what I'm saying matches up to what God's saying in his word. So firstly, just a bit of context. I know you've been going through Daniel in your evening services, uh, so you might know this already, but it's, it's a great to remind ourselves where we are in, in Scripture, in the whole Bible story. So verse 1, really easy hint there. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. So it's very helpful for your Bible timeline. Um, this is around the year, well, it's not around the year, it is the, about the year 551 before Christ. So this is 2,570 years ago-ish from today. And last week with Ken, you were looking at chapter 7, that happened two years before the vision that we see this evening. So just good to know where everything's happening. And God's people, Israel, they're still in captivity in Babylon, near modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. They, they don't live in the land of Israel and Daniel is one of those people of God. He is one of the people of Israel. He still loves and follows the Lord God, but he's working for the king of Babylon, handpicked because of the way that God had actually gifted him. And one of these major gifts that God had given Daniel is this ability to interpret dreams and visions. And God used this for Daniel to find favor with the kings of Babylon. But this time, what we're looking at tonight, it's Daniel himself. He's having the vision. And just hold the thought there, because I already know when I was preparing this, I had the same thought now, so I'm just going to mention it, and then we'll come on to it later. So you might have the question, well, does God speak to us in visions today, in the modern day? I'll try and cover that a little bit at the end, but we're just going to have a look at, and focus, firstly, on what Daniel's dream shows. So number one, What's in Daniel's vision? Verse one. In the third year of the, of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, and after which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I, was, I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So it's not clear in this chapter, how this vision is getting to Daniel. You know, is he asleep at night like I was that fearful night? Or is he conscious and then somehow transported into a vision? It's not clear, it doesn't say. What is clear though is that this is a special revelation given just to Daniel to experience and then to record for partly for us to look at it tonight in Benwell. It's amazing. Because, because it's a vision, we need to like constantly remind ourselves he isn't actually in Susa or the Ulai Canal. I know it's pretty obvious, but sometimes he can get lost in the vision. You, you, don't, you don't remember that you're actually in a vision. He's still in Babylon physically. Susa is a, is a city, it's 250 miles away to the east. It's in modern day Iran in, in the place called the Zagros Mountains. Sounds lovely. Uh, and the equivalent distance is probably Newcastle to south of Cambridge. So that's the sort of distance that Susa is from where Daniel is. And remember, they didn't have planes or cars, so he's probably never been there before. He probably can't even imagine what this place, Susa and the Citadel, even looks like. It would have been impossible to imagine. They hadn't seen it on TV or anything. 
Yet, the Lord had transported him in this vision to experience the city of Susa. Why Susa? Well, it was, it was a chief city in the Medo-Persian Empire. And what transpires in this vision is like a picture of years of geopolitics and history unfolding before Daniel's eyes. Look down, verse 3. And I raised my eyes and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. God is not saying, obviously, that there's a physical goat running about the place. That actually sounds quite funny, something I'd like to say on YouTube later on, but it's not that. Um, certain animals in the Bible, in, in their horns in particular, were, were very specific representations of kingdoms and their rulers. A bit like today, we characterize Russia as the bear, or China as a dragon, or Britain as a lion, or America as a burger. Sorry, a, a bald eagle. Bald eagle, yeah, that's what it is for the USA. But this ram stands for this Medo-Persian empire, as verse 20 says. And the two horns are the two parts, the Medes and the Persians. An important note, 150 years later, before this was written, Isaiah the prophet, in the Bible again, predicted this happening through King Cyrus. Isaiah 45 verse 1, I think it's going to be up there. It is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him, to strip kings of their armor. That, that start of chapter 45 is, is going on about this. It's amazing. The long horn is Persia, and then we have a male goat. So the first is a Medo-Persian ram, now a male goat. And this represented Alexander the Great's Greece. He's the conspicuous horn in verse 5. And then the goat Greece does this in verse 6. He, he comes to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. The goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns. So that there is Alexander the Great's death happening when he was just 33 years old. What happened in history is this Greek kingdom sort of came out of nowhere. It took 12 years and it took the world by storm. And, and he took over this Medo-Persian empire and then he died. And four generals, these four generals, started fighting between themselves. They are the other four conspicuous horns that take over. And I can see by your faces, this is great for a Sunday night, isn't it? Oh, I'm so glad this guy's come along to tell us about some ancient geopolitics. This really is riveting. Well, why does this involve God? Where, where's God in this? Stay with me, because it takes a turn in verse 8. The geopolitics is replaced by something that starts to resemble the book of Revelation at the very back of your Bible. This little horn grows up. Little, great, he's not going to do anything, is he? No, look at him, verse 10. The little horn grew great 
even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Here it gets weird. It takes a spiritual turn. In verse 13, a holy one speaks, asking for timings. How long is this, this little horn going to overthrow the sanctuary? Sanctuary, a key word again. This is literally like God's holy place, set-apart place, which is sacred to him. We probably immediately think of, of Solomon's temple, the place where God specifically, uh, especially dwelt. This is no longer a story of ancient historical battles and empires rising and falling. It's a frightening vision of God's holy place being taken over by a ruler who seems little, but as some commentators have speculated, this could be even a vision of the final antichrist. This final horn isn't content with just attacking the kingdoms of the earth. This ruler attacks God's kingdom in heaven. Things just got serious. We are no longer in ancient history. Daniel is transported seemingly beyond our present day here to the final days. And Daniel is rightly confused. He's scared. And like Daniel, we are left with a similar question. Well, what does this mean? What does this vision mean? Sometimes the Bible makes sermon writing a little bit easier. Um, I don't have to speculate on this at all. Literally, verses 15 to 26, it tells you what the vision means. It's really great. Uh, Daniel receives an interpretation of the vision. Who, interpret, who interprets it, remember? In, in the book of Daniel, it, it's usually him. He's usually the person that's interpreting the dreams. God gives him this gift. That's how he's got his position in Babylon. And it's like God has been putting him through training. Like when he was doing the visions for Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar, it was like he was doing his GCSEs for visions. And now it feels like what I presume a PhD thesis feels like. But the good news for Daniel is this really difficult vision is, is in uh, verse 15. Just look down. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Gabriel, you've probably heard of his name before. He, he's, he's often seen as, as God's messenger at very specific and important times in biblical, in biblical history. This is actually the first time that he is mentioned by name in the whole Bible. And his most famous appearance in the Bible is, is him telling Mary, mother of Jesus, don't be afraid because you're going to give birth to Jesus, God's son. Gabriel comforts Mary. And in a very similar way here, we've got Gabriel comforting Daniel. He's explaining that this antichrist, whoever this thorn is, it's good, this bit is for the end times. And then he goes on to explain the vision of Daniel, which we, we've, we've looked at before. I'll not go over it again. The goat is Greece, the ram is the Medes and the Persians. And then Gabriel 
explains in startling detail how this final king will destroy. He's described as having a bold face in verse 23, whatever bold face is, sounds terrifying. This king pays no regard to God. What he, he does what he wants and he's seemingly allowed to get away with it. Even worse, look at the end of verse 24, he will destroy the saints, God's own people. It will be through his own power and cunning. He is flaunting his sin and his rejection of God. And he seems to be getting away with it. No wonder Daniel is scared. But what does this vision mean? I mean, that is more of a heart question. What does this mean? Well, perhaps this is a story of what we see happening around us. Evil does exist. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? But the key is this. Evil is not out of God's control. God sending Gabriel to Daniel should, should have been comfort enough. But God knows the end times, even at this point in biblical history, God knows what's going to happen at the end of the world. It's not going to catch him off guard. And ultimately, even at this point, before Jesus has come to earth, God knows his victory over evil is assured. Daniel can't see that fully, but he is to just to trust God. What a comfort this should be to us tonight. As we see evil running amok, it seems to be out of control. And winning, do not be deceived. God has won. Evil is on a, on a leash. It's like a dog on a leash. God has got it on a leash. It might seem out of control, but God is bigger than sin and evil and than Satan himself. That's what this vision is trying to drive home. And yet at the end, Daniel is left distraught. He's on his sickbed after this vision. Great Daniel, who trusted God. He'd been rescued from fire the furnace. He'd been rescued from the lion's den. He seemed to interpret dreams as easy as a knife going through butter. And he's left almost a broken man at the end of this chapter. We should take comfort that we, all of us in this room, are in a better position than Daniel when looking at this. So finally, point three, what does this vision mean for us? You know, why are we spending time at St. Joseph's over two and a half thousand years later looking at this? Why is this in the Bible? Why is this good news? Daniel seems to be dumbfounded. He's actually experienced the vision. We just have to read about it. We can become like Daniel, can't we? When we see evil in the world around us. But it's usually when that evil and that sin comes closer to home. When we're wronged so personally, there's such an injustice going on in our life. Or when we, we see that evilness in, in a different way, we, a loved one gets cancer, or we ourselves, we, we get ill, and we can just look at the world like Daniel is here and say, is God really in charge of this? Because it doesn't seem like it. If God really is good, then how can he allow evil to reign uncontrolled? Well, the answer for us is like the answer for Daniel. And we have even more reason to trust God on it. Evil does exist, but it is not out of control. 
And God promises us that there will be a time, and this is in the, the end of your Bible, Revelation 21, verse 4. There will be a time, all of us here, if you trust in Jesus, you will experience this. This is going to happen. God, God's promises, they always come to fr fruition. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, from your eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. The advantage that we have is that we live after Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He came to earth and died for our sins. Daniel had to look forward and trust God. It wasn't clear to him what that victory would look like. He was, he was saved from the furnace. He was saved from a den of lions. Yet, honestly, we have more reason to trust God on this because we know of Jesus. We can look back on God's rescue plan to deal with sin and evil at the cross. And we know that God conquers death. God won't just win in the future over evil and sin. He has won at the cross. So rejoice in that tonight, everyone, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in Jesus. This vision shows us that evil and sin, they are scary. They can put us on our sick bed, but they're not out of control. They're in God's sovereign control. And I did say that we would try and cover this just a little bit quickly. Um, the question that I postulated to you before, do we get visions today? The answer to that, maybe, maybe. Some people might, some people do. Do we need visions to be saved and to know God and Jesus? Absolutely not. In our hands, in your hands right now, you have the full necessary revelation of God, our Bibles. If you want to know more of God, open up your Bible, read it, pray over it. We have so much more Bible than Daniel ever had. He didn't have any inkling of Jesus in this. God has revealed everything necessary for us to be saved. So we can know in our Bibles that God will soon put evil and Satan's reign to a final and permanent end. So don't fret. Jesus is coming back soon. Let's pray as we finish. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing passage. Uh, Lord, we've only just scratched the surface of it. Lord, we pray that maybe we'd have time this week to look over this ourselves and, and to put our hearts on the line. Please, Lord, minister to us through this passage. Thank you so much for the life of Daniel. And Lord, thank you so much that we are even in a better position than he was, even though he'd seen you save from the, the lion's den, from the furnace, we get to see you save from the cross of Jesus Christ. So Lord, let us trust you in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.